Uh, I, I loved to read, and I was the son of an army engineer who was very frequently transferred from one job to another. We lived in nine or ten different houses before I left high school. So uh, there was a sense of dislocation and of a certain distance from the community around me. And so for me, the characters in the books I read were closer to me, more emotionally available than other people were. Especially for some reason, the animal characters. You know, I loved um, Ricky Tigitavi and uh, Black Beauty and uh, the White Seal and Kipling. Um, so many of those beasts that seemed um, like available totems. I wrote something all the time from the time I started reading. I wrote little stories, I wrote little tiny screenplays and soap operas, you know, but I don't remember writing poems until high school. And it had to do with. Um, a kind of tumultuous inner life that needed to be given some kind of external form, but I didn't necessarily want anybody else to see what I was giving form to, so I kept a little notebook starting when I was maybe 14 or so. And it wasn't a diary, because I wasn't very interested in writing down what happened to me, but a collection of notes, things I overheard, um, sort of little phrases that, that came to me and seemed striking. I fell into the influence of poetry at that time. I just stumbled upon Blake and the Songs of Innocence and Experience on Garcia Lorca, um, those poems that had such saturation and color and feeling and a sense of mystery. And Tolkien, I love the songs that the characters in The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit sang. And all of those texts seem to me to be constellations of language that somehow conveyed more than the words by themselves. Meant. It was as if underneath the words was this charge or power or, or hidden life, and it was very compelling to me. My name is Richard Scott, and today I'm lucky enough to be joined by the American poet Mark Doty, who has kindly made some time for me on his whistle-stop tour of Europe. Last night he read at the Troubadour in Earl's Court, and tomorrow he's off to Belfast. Mark's astonishing poetry has, amongst many other things, won a National Book Award in America, and in England he's won the T.S. Eliot Prize for Poetry, but simply listing his incredible prizes cannot convey just how breathtaking and luminous his poetry actually is. I can certainly say without a shadow of a doubt he is my favourite poet. Can I just begin by saying welcome to the UK, Mark? Thank you, Richard. I'm honoured. I don't think it would be an exaggeration to say that your poem, Days of 1981, changed my life. That deceptively simple line, he knelt in front of me in the bleachers, contained so much honesty, so much eroticism, but also ordinariness. In a way, the poem suggests to me that gay sex is normal and deserves a place in poetry. Was that something you were consciously trying to do? It's something that was crucial to me as an arrival. I had, as I was first coming out, read poems of gay life which uh, expressed their, their queerness by simply being about sex, just nothing but sex. And these were often collected in anthologies uh, promoted gay liberation, like uh, The Male Muse, which was a famous one. And you could read cover to cover, and every sex act imaginable was described, but sort of nothing else of the speaker's experience. And I had read the opposite, which were very elegant and patinated poems in which a gay speaker expressed sexuality through style, through um, you know an interest in, in Donatello or high culture or opera. And what was missing for me as a, a model was something in the middle, a poem in which 
the gay subject could be thinking about anything, about work, about economics, about social life. I stumbled upon a poet um, whose work was so much a forward-making path for me. His name was James L. White. And he published one marvelous book um, in 1981 called Salt Ecstasies, published in the States by Grey Wolf. And White's poems were heartbreakingly elegiac. He, he was uh, quite ill when the book was written. He had a heart condition. He knew he wasn't going to be around so long. The poems are regret that he's overweight, that he can't quit smoking, that he has trouble finding a date. And they're so open, not only about sex, but about just about everything. So reading those poems seemed to me to open a world of possibility. And I began to practice speaking more openly about my life and my work. I'm, I'm glad that poem uh, works for you. It's one of the first poems I, I wrote in which I just described uh, meeting a guy in a bar and, and going somewhere with him. And it was enabled for me from two places. One from Cavafy, thus you know, the title, Days of 1981, and those beautiful little poems of Cavafy's, which are icons of an erotic encounter, and which one understands in reading them are something like snapshots pasted in an album. You know, This is all that Cavafy gets to keep of that moment, is that encounter. And that's very much the way I felt about that experience. It's also enabled because it's through a kind of um, fairly loose terzarima form in that poem, lets me go on to say things that I might not otherwise have felt comfortable saying. And there's something about um, the permission which the form gives that allows one to have a kind of nerve or courage. Thinking a little bit more about uh, gay desire or sex, there's another phrase of yours that I love from your poem Tiara, the salt tide of wanting. It not only recalls to me Yeats's phrase, the white rush of leather and the swan, hmm. but it, it tries so beautifully to capture desire or lust, the actual physical feeling of which is, of course, wordless. Thank you. I, you know, the poem was written in all oh, around uh, 1984, 1985, very early on um, in the AIDS epidemic uh, for Boston, which was where I was living at that time. And my friend uh, Peter Halla had, had died, um, one of the first people that, that I knew, I guess actually the first person I knew to have died of AIDS. And um, at Peter's wake, the comment which is reported in the poem was made by casual acquaintance. He asked for it. And I was filled with rage when I heard that. And uh, you know, it's hard to write from anger. Uh, what makes it difficult for me is that usually... Uh, composing poem is a process of inquiry. It's, it's sort of digging in to discover how one feels about something. But with anger, you know how you feel about something. I was outraged by this statement. But writing the poem was a way of thinking about what it was about that that was so offensive to me, and how one might reclaim the dignity of desire in the face of such a condemnation. So attempting to, at that point, you know, when desire was, was demonized and dangerous, trying to um, claim its power, you know, to, to bless its human dignity. Often desire is what carries us forward into the world. Sometimes desire is the only thing that keeps you alive, you know, that, that, that there's something that you want, and that wanting can be a source of, of, of courage and energy and of connection to the rest of life. It seems to suggest that everyone has this exactly the same desire. His specific desire is opened out to the reader at the end, isn't it? It says, what could any of us do but ask for it? One of the things I so much want to do in writing poetry is to break through a certain kind of sense of isolation. That isolation is, in some ways, uh, 
personal, having grown up as an army kid who moved all the time, you know, in a sense of dislocation from community. And it's also just simply the human condition that, that here we are, seemingly separate from one another inside our sacks of skin, and we depend upon language or touch to try to connect us to other people and often feel that connection um, fails or is only partial. So if a poem can do the work of reaching through experience towards community, towards a sense of, of connection with the reader, I find that so thrilling. Uh, even though, you know, I've been writing poems for a long time now, I feel so pleased when, say, at a reading, I'm delivering a poem to an audience and I feel their sense of, of yes, I felt that way too. A poem that I know you love, uh, Rilke's Archaic Torso of Apollo, almost seems to have prompted your poem, A Green Crab Shell. I know that Rilke, when he was living in Paris, went to work for Rodin because he wanted to find a heavier, sturdier form for his poetry. But in your poem, you almost seem to go the other way, to mm. find this almost not their exoskeleton. Mm. In your poem, it is the fragile, the gobbled, the ruined that prompts such extraordinary conclusions. You know, you can't study a broken thing or a partial thing as a poet at this historical moment without reference to that poem in some way. For me, Archaic Torso of Apollo stands as a kind of, of gateway into the 20th century. There is a speaker looking at a broken god and saying, what is to be made of this? And he stands at the beginning of a period of enormous dislocation and change. The war is approaching a whole different sense of what time and space might mean to us. And so um, there is Rilke feeling a kind of holiness, uh, the enormous pressure of possibility bearing down upon him from the gaze of that headless god. I picked up that little crab shell on the beach and was shocked by the color inside. It must have been devoured by a bird really moments before because it was the brightest blue you can imagine and that color is not found inside green crab shells. I brought it home to study it. I put it on a saucer at my desk and when I came back an hour later, that color was gone. So I can't remember now if I wrote a prose version of that encounter, which is in Heaven's Coast, or the poem first. I think I might have written the prose first and then later felt that's that's not all there is to it. There's, there's something else here and, and often if you take the same image and you turn it formally, in other words, take you know what's a free verse poem and rewrite it as a sonnet, or take what's in verse and rewrite it in prose, some other level or aspect of the material comes into the foreground. So whichever was the case, I started reworking it. And I think if I, I first thought, you know, we cannot know what those fantastic legs were like, which is a restatement of Robert Bly's translation of Architecture of Apollo. And the poem sort of is tumbling out from there. What you can't see of the green crab, as in Rilke's poem, you spend so much time on, on what's no longer visible to us. And so I wanted to try something like that too, but I had no idea where the poem was going until that arrival through description of an imaginary visitation of what the underside of our own skin might be. What if you were opened in that way? What would we see? As soon as the poem comes to that, I know what I'm really talking about. And this poem was written, oh, mid-90s, and it is coming really on the crisis time of the epidemic in Provincetown, Massachusetts, where I was living then. Provincetown, as a gay and lesbian resort, and as an artist colony, is a place that was hit incredibly hard by the epidemic. We, you know, 3,000 people lived there year-round. In those days, we had a funeral a week. So it felt like wartime. It felt like we were under siege. And while I was writing about those times in a very direct and narrative way, 
I felt that that wasn't, that wasn't sufficient. You, know, you couldn't get to the resonances or layers of the experience entirely through narrative. And so this poem is, it became a little gift. You know, something offers itself which turns out to be a vehicle for what you don't know until you write the poem. And the tenor I discover is, what is it like to let go of the body? Is that something that we could in any way affirm? Many of the poems in my Alexandria and in Atlantis are poems that are struggling with the possibility of some way to find the fact of our mortality, or the mortality of those we love, acceptable or bearable. Is there a way that we can negotiate with making meaning out of mortality and say, all right, I don't have to be entirely devastated by this prospect? I think all negotiations like that fail, ultimately, but it um, doesn't mean you get to stop doing them. I read how after you visited a fishmonger's, you were so compelled to write about the mackerel you had just seen that you started sketching out the poem on an envelope whilst you were driving. Is that the urgency with which your ideas usually come? Yes, but not so often immediately. That's an unusual instance in that there's a moment of perception, these sparkling, gorgeous, and identical mackerel laid out on, on ice in the market that just riveted me and, and I found myself wanting to describe them almost at the moment I was looking at them. Usually what happens for me is that sometime after the fact an image floats up as it were in consciousness or insists upon itself. Um, I think this happens to, to many of us that when you're falling asleep or, or you're taking a quiet moment, maybe you're you know, writing a notebook Something comes back from the day or days that have passed that perhaps didn't even seem important at the time, but then says, no, look at me, look at me. And I think when that happens, it's because that image has become or serves, can serve, as a vehicle for something that you're thinking about. Perhaps it can embody a question, a concern, a feeling. So that's the more usual thing for me, that later on I think, hmm, I want to talk about that. But, you know, when I start talking about that, that's when, in fact, you know, that kind of urgency does often happen in the sense that the poem is pushing to get it out. It, it is knocking at the wall saying, oh, attend to me. Go further. What can you do? What else can you do with this? I have observed how many of your poems reference luminosity or prismatics, as it were, something beguiling that you are constantly drawn to. Indeed, in your poem, Shaker Orchard, you write certain American landscapes contain whole regions of luminosity. Is that something you believe? I'm thinking in particular in, in that passage about Hudson River School, these wonderful paintings that are landscapes, and, and they represent a river, mountains, forests, but they're really paintings about light uh, and the subtle shiftings of, of the veil, the wonderful apparitions and transformations that light and atmosphere make. And that's crucial to me imaginatively not because light is beautiful in its behavior but because there is a sense in which all the world around us what is it but light you know light coming back to our eyes coming back to our senses and it's constantly mobile and fluid the world seems solid and contemporary physics teaches us and close attention teaches us that this is not the case that uh, the kind of, of fluidity and variability around us, the mutability of things, is um, the essence of its life. So that, I suppose, is a part of that quest, in a way, for an answer to the problem of mortality. That, in fact, if we are light, and part of the continual play of light and shadow in the world, if light is 
making all these forms and constantly transforming for its own pleasure, really, for the, the joy of being light, then um, what's to worry about? Hmm? Even when your poems stray into dark places, you've often written about disease and death, they seem to conclude into a likeness, into that luminosity. I'm thinking especially of poems like Brilliance, which end with the phrase, icon-coloured fins troubling the water. Your writing in this way conveys a love of the world, never a bitterness. Is this something you recognise about yourself? There have been many sorts of experiences in my life which have um, presented kinds of difficulties which um, challenged my sense of what can be loved about living. And you know, that's true for all of us. That there's, there's always something you know, to push us away from our, uh, what I believe is our sort of natural joy in being alive. I very much wanted my poems to resist cynicism, to reach for what can be blessed about experience. And, you know, that's who I am. It's a sort of a signature, I think, of my character as a poet. And it's also something that I have wanted not to become merely habitual, you know. So um, I'm aware that my tendency is to look for a point um, where I can turn the poem in the direction of the positive. My friend Marie Howe, who's a marvelous poet, said to me, she was reading at the draft of mine, she said, then. She said, there's always a then in your poems. And my first thought when I hear that is, well, is it a poem that doesn't have a then in it? You know, you have to have this sort of pivot or a fulcrum. It's to be a place where the poem transforms. Because I'm aware of that, I've been trying in, in recent poems to um, allow myself sometimes to let the poem come to rest in a more difficult place without necessarily making that affirmation. It's very hard for me to do that, but, but it, it feels always important to be able to change a little as an artist. You know, if you repeat the same strategies, you wind up making meaning in the same ways, and the result is diminishing meaning. So, you know, it's not that I, I deliberately want to become darker. It's that I don't want to uh, simply reinforce the same habits of composition. You know, I think people don't really change very much over the course of a life, but if you really try, you can shift just a little. And that shifting just a little is absolutely crucial in the life of an artist. I've been writing for 40 years, you know. And if I keep doing the same thing, it's not going to reward me in the same way. And the consequence of that is that you as the reader are not going to feel the same kind of depth charge or intensity about the poem. So in order to make discoveries, one has to keep formally reinventing oneself a little and also in terms of content reinventing oneself a little. After your partner of many years, Wally Roberts, passed away, you wrote a great many poems that seemed directly influenced by his death, including, of course, the title poem from your collection, Atlantis. From what I've read, it seems like you might have written straight through your grief and your rage, never pausing to fall into silence. Is that true? And, and if it is, has there ever been a time when you reached a tranquility, as Wordsworth puts it, from which to recollect your experience? Mm. It was absolutely necessary to me to be able to write in direct and indirect ways about Wally's illness and death. We had been together for a dozen years. I thought we would be together for the rest of our lives. I felt that our relationship was sort of the ground upon which I stood. And I was, you know, I was just turned 40, just not quite, when he died. And so... I mean, that seems to me young now, you know. I, I wasn't ready in any way for such a loss. I don't know if anyone ever is, but I was especially not ready. And I remember having a dream not so long afterwards when 
uh, the question in, in my dream is, how, how am I going to get through this? What am I going to do? And what I saw in front of me were tablets and pencils and pens and paper and typewriter and computer. And the message seemed to be, you have what you, this is how you're going to get through it. You know, you're going to write and talk your way through it. And so that's what I did. Giving form to that grief made me able to step forward. Writing doesn't fundamentally change things, but it, it names your condition, makes you therefore less lonely because other people can, can read the name of your condition and can share something of it, can talk back to you about it. I, I moved forward. There are, are succeeding poems which talk about a sort of willingness to participate in the world again, um, an agreement to fall in love again. I don't think um, my grief and anger from that time is gone. Uh, it's sort of in, in the next room. I'm in a different relationship to it. And I think that's what happens over time, is that you, you move away from loss in the sense of being involved in other things, and yet that loss is something that one can revisit. Lately I've been thinking about this because I went back to Provincetown not long ago. I hadn't been there in, in five years. And I felt that in each street corner, there was the memory of some moment. You know, here was a restaurant where I, I last had lunch with my friend Linda Hull. Here was a place where well, I bought shoes. Uh, it was as if the town were a kind of memory theater, and any of that could come rushing back to me, which made me feel like it's not gone. That, that feeling is still there. And, and yet, um, I have these poems to which I can return. I love going back and reading old poems to a group of people where I can feel their response to them. And in doing so, I feel like I've made some kind of map that charts where I've been and how I've dealt with this in the past. It's a, you know, this is a silly image, but you know how in dance lessons there'll be those footsteps on the floor as you put your feet in these places in order to do the waltz? That's what the old poems can feel like to me. Like You step your way through this, and look, you've made something that was a way of talking back to that moment. I was very haunted by the combination of the everyday and the visceral uh, when you wrote in Atlantis, when I put my head to his chest, I can hear the virus humming like a refrigerator. That was such a painful time. And uh, one where, because uh, there were no medications that, that did any good, and, and the sort of common understanding in the early 90s was that, that we had just gotten really nowhere uh, with this disease. And there were a few things that you could throw at it was AZT, which had horrible side effects, and, and maybe slowed it down a little. But it was as if... There was no hope on the horizon. And so this sense of, uh, of threat and of powerlessness was everywhere. And a poem like that one, which um, describes a recurrent dream about my dog being struck by a car, it, I understood in writing the poem that dream was so much about helplessness. And listening to, as it were, the virus inside him was also an experience of feeling uh, entirely without agency. You know, it, it's, as you play, here's this machine humming along inside the body. What can we do? We can't turn it off. Because the image is so domestic and so familiar, the humming refrigerator, and in some ways a sort of image of comfort, right? You know, that, that's nice. You have a humming refrigerator. It means you have something to eat. It means you're at home, perhaps. Linking that to the difficult, to, to the negative, is a way of creating a sense of polarity or tension. You called your poem a display of mackerel with their longing to be identical and non-individual, an anti-elegy. I was fascinated by that term, anti-elegy. Mm. Can you elaborate? The elegy traditionally gives us uh, a portrait of 
lip person thing place which has been lost and then offers us some gesture of consolation some way of making meaning out of it so you know if you turn back to Elizabeth and our, our friend Mr. Milton is here in the uh, marble form behind you uh, you know this just doesn't tell us very much about the guy who has died because I, I don't think Milton even really knew him very well it's not necessary to conserve his memory because he's not dead He's, he's, he's preserved in heaven, he's in better state, really, than he was before, so you know, we can take comfort in that. Um, in the, I guess we could say, the post-Christian allergy, it is much more uh, likely to spend time on description of the person who's been lost because the elegy is itself an attempt to conserve. This is to say, we can remember this, we, we can hold this person in our awareness and therefore something of, of him or her is not lost. I wrote many of those poems, which uh, are trying to, to catch a gesture of lollies or, or a moment or something in our relationship. A display of mackerel goes the other way. It's looking at those fish, saying, they're so beautiful. They offer us such pleasure and such, uh, there's just such physical joy almost expressed in those sparkling skins. And their chain mail, you know, their, their suit of armor. And they're, they seem to be all exactly alike. So that if an individual is lost, what difference does it make? The school goes on, the life of the whole goes on, and here's another and another and another. One can stand at some distance from individual life and look at human beings the same way. Here we all are, our, our momentary sparkle, and then we're gone. Walt Whitman says, uh, men and women passing in the streets, if they are not flashes and specks, what are they? So that poem wants to try to stand at that distance and, and say, uh, you know, the life is in the whole. The life is in the flashing school of fish, the tribe, the flock. And therefore, one need not feel so much grief. In your poem, Difference, the jellyfish are compared to clouds, balloons, flowers, condoms. You seem to be seeking to find the perfect metaphor or vessel with which to share these bizarre creatures with us. Do you suppose that catalogue of imagery came from your sheer desire to translate the natural world onto the page? I remember writing that poem very specifically because it was one of the first poems I had written in um, a new house, a house in Provincetown where I lived for many years. And I had a, a little study upstairs in this room. I was struggling with some poem that just wouldn't come right and wouldn't come. I couldn't get anywhere. And finally, in frustration, I went for a walk on the, the beach along the harbor, which was you know a block away, and I saw these jellyfish in the water. And they were in very shallow water, and, and they were, were sort of a, a filmy white translucence that was undulating and reshaping itself and uh, just giving the lie to the notion of fixed form. They were becoming all kinds of things before my eyes. And when I got back home, I threw out whatever it was I was working on and started describing the jellyfish. I think that that poem offers many, many kinds of tropes, many figures of speech for the jellyfish, because it wants to um, make them all equivalent. Not that there is a perfect form, perfect uh, figure to describe what they are, but that many, many figures are necessary in order to point to their character. So uh, language is this lovely, slippery, fluid thing perhaps changing its form as much as the jellyfish themselves were. And that, that parallel seemed very inviting to me, the, the idea that um, we might embrace the slippery nature of words and um, not expect them to be so tightly tied to experience. In other words, should we mourn because there's a gap between you know, the signifier 
and the thing signified, or maybe we should just relish that, that, that words uh, don't quite do the work, and let's supply more of them and uh, treat them as uh, something to play with in order to try to approach reality. The work of the poem, I, I believe, is, is inquiry, and my poems come out of a desire to understand more of reality, to, to, to gain a more clear perspective about what's around me and to try to locate where I am emotionally, psychologically, uh, phenomenologically. Part of that impulse arises from having been very influenced by uh, my family's uh, religious perspective. Uh, my, my grandmother was a fundamentalist Christian. It was in, in East Tennessee in the 1950s. She believed that the end of the world was coming soon and that the what we saw before us was a kind of veil that would be ripped away when Christ came back and you know the, the moon turned to blood and the angels um, lifted the gates of heaven. I think that notion that we could, what was in front of us, was not all there is, was crucial to me. And I never really bought Christian ideology exactly, theology, because... We moved away from Tennessee when I was seven years old. We, we went to all kinds of different churches and finally did none at all. But that sort of fundamental sense that the, what is the ordinary, that what's in front of you is not all there is, that there are worlds behind this one, always seemed absolutely true to me. And I think the poetry is in a way a quest to um, always keep pulling the veil back, see what's beneath it. I know that you read poetry every day, do you suppose you might be able to tell me what your essential reading is? What are the poems or the poets you return to again and again? I read Whitman obsessively, and that obsession has, has grown uh, larger in, in recent years. I am working on a prose meditation about his work, um, in part really as, as a kind of exorcism, as a way to give form to this obsession so that... Um, he stops looming over my work and my life in such an enormous way. And that's partly a joke. I don't want him to go away. But it's also really true that I am um, deeply fascinated by his courage, by the incredible embrace of the poems, their expansiveness, and their um, uncanny ability to connect with the reader in a way sort of outside of time. It's as if he can create a scene in a poem like Crossing Brooklyn Ferry and then somehow look around the curtain and speak to us directly at the same time. It's remarkable. I go back to Kuvafi, I go back to Rilke, Emily Dickinson, Hart Crane, James Wright, James Merrill, Elizabeth Fisher. I want to end now by going back to your poem, Days of 1981, in which you write, The black women singing, secret advocates of our hearts. Without wishing to embarrass you, I would contend that you have become the secret advocate of our hearts, of the gay men who read your poems. Do you feel that role in not just poetic society, but in gay society too? Well, I, first I feel deeply moved by, by your statement. That, that Thank you. That, that, that's lovely. I am aware that readers, perhaps particularly gay men, have made use of my poems as uh, a way of charting their own experience, as a way of um, seeing one's emotions, one, one's life in a way, you know, given form by someone else. And I know how powerful that is. I love so much when I'm reading a poem, reading anything, and I see some aspect of the world, something I've noticed, thought about, something that hasn't been spoken before. That, what's more exciting than that? That thrills me. By and large, when the poet steps out of the venue where the reading takes place, you're back to being anybody. And I think that's probably a good thing. We don't really want the kind of recognition that means you never get to be anonymous. Anonymity is part of 
the ground out of which to do work can come. You know, you, you want to be enough somebody, enough nobody to be able to experience enough of a range of the world. But every time this kind of thing happens to me, where someone tells me about what my work has meant to them, I feel both a bit humbled by it. Oh, gosh, that, that's what a poem can do. And also um, encouraged, you know, in the deeper sense of, of encouraged, you know, to, to be given heart, to take heart. Continuing is uh, worth it. Mark, thank you so much for making the time to talk to me. Oh, my pleasure, Richard. Very much so.